Welcome to Culture and Value. My name is Mark English. This podcast, as I've pointed out previously, is about personal values, individual values. It's not primarily about politics and geopolitics, but everything we do or think is, of course, done or thought within some broader political or geopolitical context. And I'll be talking about such matters from time to time. Nor is the show about economics and finance, except perhaps insofar as economic and financial factors play into social and cultural trends. Nor is it about ideology, except in a negative sense. But ideology is a tricky concept, and the word has different meanings. It can be taken in a very broad sense to encompass the value-based intellectual and narrative structures, the stories we tell ourselves, if you like, which we as individuals are committed to and which allow us to make sense of and interpret the social and political world we find ourselves in. In this sense, ideology is unavoidable and each of us has his or her own unique ideology. But the term is usually used in a negative sense, in a pejorative sense, to describe widely shared patterns of thinking which incorporate certain kinds of social and political myth, including historical myths which tend to place one's own group or tribe or nation in, in a good light and other groups in a bad light. Such ideologies often drive and are often deliberately fostered in order to drive revolutionary activity or to motivate soldiers to fight and the wider population to support them. Politicians, media owners and others in positions of power routinely collude to manipulate our thinking. Political and social myths and the ideologies within which they are often embedded play a crucial role here. What I'm talking about today is a particular instance of this, the perpetuation in the post-communist era of Cold War preoccupations, including relentless attempts to generate and maintain public hostility towards the old Cold War enemies, Russia and China. You can see this process operating on various levels from crude slurs and populist demonization to more sophisticated approaches whereby political rivalries, geopolitical rivalries are presented in ideological terms. Western countries are seen as embodying and defending certain ideals, liberal democracy, freedom, and so on. Russia and China, not only as embodying authoritarian capitalism or some such thing, but as actively promoting this imagined ideology on a global basis. Sure, you can interpret certain political systems as being despotic, for example, and compare them unfavorably with Western liberal democracies. But the despotisms in question, take maybe Russia, China, Syria, Iran, are quite different from one another. What's more, with some possible exceptions, Iran comes to mind, they're not trying to export their respective systems or ideologies. They're not trying to impose them on the rest of us. Now, I won't go into the history of the neoconservative movement, except to point out that it has a fairly clearly defined history. It had its origins in the American anti-Stalinist left of the 1950s and 60s. Key early figures were Norman Podhoritz and his wife Midge Dechter. Podhoritz was editor-in-chief of the very influential magazine Commentary from 1960 to 1995. This movement prom promoted the idea of American exceptionalism and an interventionist foreign policy. 
neoconservative forces effectively shaped US foreign policy under a number of um, presidents, um, President Reagan, for example. While the Soviet Union persisted, the policies in question had a certain logic. The emphasis before the 1990s was not just on countering the power and influence of certain countries, but also on countering the ideology, Marxism, Leninism, which those countries were seen to represent. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, many observers thought quite reasonably that NATO and similar bodies should be scaled back or dismantled altogether. But a new and more dangerous generation of neoconservatives prevailed in foreign policy circles. And for example, commitments made to, the, to Gorbachev about NATO not being expanded eastward were reneged on, which of course stoked tensions with, with, with Russia, which, which continue to this day. Historically, neoconservatives were identified with the Republican Party, but the general principles of their approach were also embraced by the Democrats. Again, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but it's worth at least mentioning the neoconservatively oriented think tank, CNAS, Center for a New American Security. Um, it was and still is very influential and is closely associated with the Democrats. Hillary Clinton, in particular, had links with CNAS, and when she bowed out of active politics, Kamala Harris took on her mantle and sources of funding. I may be a bit cynical about these things, but I'm inclined to believe that if you want to know the real driving forces of foreign policy, you need to follow the money. Other factors are involved, of course, but many of the players in the US context, and elsewhere no doubt, um, have a direct or indirect vested interest in perpetuating Cold War-like policies. Who funds CNAS? The big defence contractors and associated interests are prominent donors. The military-industrial security complex, which has expanded to include the big tech companies, traces its origins back to the incipient military-industrial complex, which President Eisenhower, a former general, warned about as his tenure as president drew to a close. When the US was truly prosperous, as it was during the immediate post-World War II era, the main dangers to world peace were seen by many, at any rate, to be the USSR and the network of radical groups and forces, many of them supported by Russia, which adhered to some form of Marxist ideology. But the situation is now totally different, and not just in ideological terms. For one thing, the US economy is in relative decline. This changes everything. Over the last 50 years, and increasingly over the last couple of decades, the US has exploited its financial power and the privileges accruing to the fact that its national currency serves also as the main trade currency of the world. It has, it has exploited this situation for geopolitical purposes and political expediency. Policies have been pursued, which have allowed governments at all levels and, and other bodies, both public and private, to amass debt on an almost unrestricted basis. Excessive debt always leads to painful consequences in the end. And given that this is not just an American phenomenon, given that it has become a truly global issue, it's impossible to predict exactly how, how it's going to play out. Both inflationary and disinflationary forces are at work here.
I'll just say this, however, deficit financing has its limits. And I don't see the US government as being able to sustain current levels of spending without precipitating a major crisis. What's more, if, as seems likely, a new financial system is set up to replace the fiat US dollar-based system, which 50 years ago replaced the Bretton Woods arrangement, this new system will not be controlled by the US in the way the current system is. America is economically less dominant than it used to be, and a lot of other countries will be demanding and getting a seat at the table. There's another angle to, to this. As a rule, declining powers are more dangerous than rising powers. The leaders of powerful countries in decline are often tempted to do desperate things to, to stem the loss of power and influence. By contrast, a rising power like China has a strong disincentive to rock the boat in any serious way, a strong disincentive to initiate serious military action, for example. Time is on China's side, and I think the Chinese leadership is, is fully aware of this. American military interventions over the last two decades have caused great suffering and have achieved little. Diplomacy and covert operations have, it seems, been equally unsuccessful. For example, since the mid-1990s, American foreign policy settings have helped to push China and Russia into an ever closer strategic partnership. Despite its relatively small economy, one-tenth the size of China's, Russia's strategic importance is undeniable, geographically and in other ways. Techno technology and trade are driving an historically significant process of social and economic change in the Eurasian region. From massive trade flows which bypass the US dollar to joint military exercises to China's continuing dependence on Russian expertise in aspects of military technology, the symbiosis between these two countries has moved well beyond the uneasy political relations of the Cold War era. As the centre of economic gravity shifts to the east, so too does military power and political and cultural influence. Are we headed for a post-ideological world? Not entirely. It's a question of degree. The fact that the West's major antagonists have abandoned the ideology of Marxism-Leninism and adopted more pragmatic approaches makes it difficult, if not impossible, for the US and its allies to sustain with any degree of plausibility the simple dichotomies of a Cold War-style approach. Our perceived strategic rivals have adopted various ideologies and forms of government, while in the West, tottering liberal democracies are facing challenges from within. We see a swirling mix of views and outlooks, as well as stark generational divides. Various forms of nationalism, regionalism, separatism, and internationalism compete with one another. Some groups focus on identity politics, others on radical environmentalism. Attempts are being made to revive various forms of socialism. Flawed theories like MMT, modern monetary theory, are suddenly mainstream. In such an ideologically fluid and confused situation, American attempts to utilise ideology as a means of cementing Western solidarity stand little chance of success. In recent years, we've seen major US allies resisting America's hardline approach to Russia and China. Long drawn out battles like that associated with the American attempts to stop the Nord Stream 2 
natural gas pipeline from Russia to Northwest Europe have only served to weaken American influence in Western European countries. Generally, pragmatic considerations seem to be winning out, and US allies are increasingly seeing the need to take a more independent line on foreign policy and trade. But you never know whether pragmatic or darker political forces are going to prevail. Tensions are high in various regions, especially perhaps the Far East, and propaganda based on crude stereotypes, myths and ideology is much in evidence. As ever, its purpose is largely to keep international tensions high, to distract from domestic political and economic problems, and potentially to fan the flames of war.